0: Welcome to the weekly squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. I took a few weeks off for a variety of reasons, and now I am back. And well, nothing much has happened in the world since I've been away, has it? Hmm. I wish. <laughs> I wish I was. Uh, I wish I was lying there, but I am not. I am not going to dwell on too much on the various big issues. I don't think I even have to really mention them, um, because I'm pretty sure you know what they are. I'm not gonna dwell on them too much because we're probably getting enough of that everywhere else, but I'm gonna get back to my geeky, techie history, whatever goodness that um you come to expect from this show and make this a <clears throat> free zone. In this episode, I have an interview with Nick Millwood from MGage, and we have a conversation about mobile engagement. They are a mobile engagement company, but Uh, We have a chat about the ways that people have been able to create mobile engagement or brands have been able to create mobile engagement over the decades from SMS to MMS uh, to messaging platforms to the future with RCS. So look forward to that interview later. In the meantime, let's get to the links. First from The Guardian, an article from Rhiannon. Lucy Coslett, about tips for working from home, if you may find yourself working from home right now. I wonder why that might be. So take it from me, take it from many of us who have been working from home for some time, um, and we have min- plenty of advice and experience and tips for you. There are certain things you should not do. This article is a little uh, jovial, a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm not sure if that's appropriate or not, but the article is now a few weeks old anyway. And one of the main pieces of advice in here is don't accept parcels from uh, four-four neighbours. Um, I can attest to that. Um, there might be other reasons you don't want to accept neighbours' parcels right now, but um, one of the main reasons in their parcels was you'll spend the rest of the day dealing with angry neighbours, wondering why when they waited all day they didn't get their parcel. There are some others in here, like things like slow cookers. Actually, what, uh, this is tongue-in-cheek, so I'm not 100% sure how much this is really what she believes in. She says, wear what you like. I actually am not a fan of that. I have always dressed up in quote marks. Or <laughs> well, at least it made sure I get up, get dressed. I have a good desk set up and things like that. I try not I try to keep my work areas and my leisure areas as separate as possible, which is not always possible in a one-bedroom apartment, but it is moderately possible. You have some kind of logical divide between where you work and where you play. And of course, at the moment where those are becoming fast mushed together, that is going to become harder and harder, but try to keep those barriers as much as possible. But anyway, if you're looking for more slightly tongue-in-cheek tips for working from home, maybe for those of us who have actually worked from home for some time more than those of us who are just venturing on that experience, then have a read, have a giggle, and then go and find something that's actually more practical. Next, another article from, actually from nearly a month ago now, it's been on my list for some time, also somewhat relating to everybody being uh, remote right now, because this has been a choice of communication channel that has popped up quite a lot. This is Discord. Discord has popped up as being popular for a variety of reasons. It's popular amongst gamers, which sort of spread its popularity amongst other groups, but also because it has this ability to have always-on audio channels that people can just drop in and out of. which. Um, people might want right now. And actually, I've set up a few myself, joined a few myself, and it's uh, been um, an interesting experience. The number of people who can't get their microphones to work is an interesting one. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why half the time. But then also before this, a lot of open source projects and communities started moving to Discord, and I always wondered why. I could see why some people had a reservation with Slack, sure. But uh, why Discord? Discord really is not any better Um, from a business perspective, than Slack. It is still proprietary. It is still predominantly commercial software. In fact, in some respects, Slack is much clearer about how it makes money and Discord is a little woolly and what they will do in the future to make money is also a little unclear. So in some respects, I would say it's uh, worse than Slack in terms of knowing how they might try to monetize things in the future. And this is a post from Jeffrey Poore called... Discord is not an acceptable choice for free software projects, pretty much summarizing up some of the things I just said there. He also cites uh, privacy issues. Um, they do read a lot of incoming and outgoing data, or they can, I suppose, is the, is the better thing to say there. It has a lot of metrics, uh, toggles that you can kind of configure on and off, but by default it tends to phone home quite a lot. And you also need an account. To be honest with you, I did look into kind of viable user-friendly options for non-tech people, and pretty much everything involves you creating an account on some sort of service. So it's actually quite difficult to to get this right. In fact, to be honest with you, one of the better services for not having to have an account is probably Zoom or Hangouts. Um Zoom you need to download some software and then you don't know what that's going to do. See news last year about some of the strange things Zoom was doing and then Hangouts, and even if you don't create an account, you don't really know what Google is going to be tracking. So there are very few user-friendly options, I am sure and I know there are plenty of open source um decentralized options, but Let's be realistic about how usable they are for me trying to get some gamer friends interested or my co-working friends who work not in the tech business. And that is kind of more my point. And then actually, there's a lot more in here about uh, why you should not be using it for any project that values free software or open source software. And I don't think it even mentions my business model kind of point, but um, it's probably applied in there. And you can also add that to the list Next, an article by Will Knight on Wired called Forget Chess, The Real Challenge is Teaching uh, AI to Play D&D. Now, in some respects, I guess AI can play d d in the D&D-themed computer games, but it's not quite the same thing. I guess the point here is uh, maybe it's a little bit clickbaity. The point here is that being um, a player or a uh, dungeon master, games master, in any role-playing game is a very creative, spontaneous pursuit And can an AI do that? Whereas chess is actually, well, computers can already play chess. It's a series of um, mapping of moves based on history and learning to see what you should do to react to a move. Whereas obviously role-playing is completely fluid. But, of course, some people have tried. And the article lists some people who have tried this including actually from APEN, including actually from OpenAPI, a, a tool called GPT-2 that kind of ran as a games master late last year, actually. And then there's also AI Dungeon, which I think I covered in the past, and I'm hoping to arrange an interview with its creator soon, that it's not really a DM, it's more of a text adventure, actually. So it's a little bit more sandboxed, or maybe you kind of follow what the DM said more, and it just reacts to you. Uh, I don't know, I still don't necessarily think these are the same way as I would a DM in an actual role-playing game. But still, they're kind of interesting approaches to looking at how an AI could do that sort of role. And actually, the article kind of concludes with saying that maybe these are not things that will run a whole game for you, but maybe they'll be more useful as kind of DM AI assistants to help you with bits of storytelling. I know when I've run games and you have a scenario and then players go off at a weird tangent and you're not really quite sure what to do, maybe an AI could... Maybe an AI could help you fill in moments like that, much like um, I think in an interview I did some time ago with a musical AI that kind of helps musicians fill in gaps when they get stuck in their songwriting, things like that. I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to actually try that as a a practical outcome. Maybe I'll add that to my very long to-do list of things to try. If you get there before me and you do give it a go, please let me know. Um, you know how to get in touch at com slash contact. Next, an article from Caitlin Kimpanu on ZDNet. This was actually widely reported, but I'm just picking uh, this article in particular, talking about browser privacy, the most private browsers, browsers that do not phone home the most. And unsurprisingly, Brave came out on top. But more surprisingly, Microsoft Edge came out fairly high, which uh, considering it has been pushing its kind of um, privacy features It's kind of an interesting development there. And then the Yandex browser, which I'm guessing is mostly used in Russia, and then that does not surprise me. But also Firefox was actually surprisingly high as well. Uh, Firefox, the things can be turned off, but they are on mostly by default. Um, And again, I suppose Mozilla and Firefox generally put themselves out there as privacy first. So making people have to disable things is maybe not the best approach, and maybe that should be looked at differently. Um, But let's have a look a little bit more here. So these tests involve looking at what a browser does at certain situations. Things like the first startup, uh, close and restart of the browser, pasting in URLs, typing URLs, and when the browser was just sitting there doing nothing. And Brave, in fact, came out very much on top and doing next to nothing in most of those situations. Um, I ended up switching back to Brave, actually. I, (laughs) I had a brief... Uh, fling with Firefox after being a Brave user for some time. Um, Mostly because Brave Sync just does not work, and it still does not work, but I'm finding some other solutions to that instead. But I kind of flipped back to it because I always sort of preferred it, and that kind of pushed me back. But if you haven't tried it yet, give it a go. It's um, a rapidly, rapidly improving browser. Okay, entering my computing history segment that I always seem to have. First is an article from Ion Design by Perrin Drum. This is called, Roberta Williams is the world's first graphic computer game designer, but she's famous for all the wrong reasons. Quite a long post post title. It says she was married to Ken Williams. I'm not sure if that's the same Ken Williams who invented Pearl. The article doesn't really mention. It just mentions that he was a programmer. So I'm going to assume especially the era this is relating to, that it is the same person. And she is somewhat well-known for designing a lot of the graphics from classic 8-bit games, things like King's Quest, for example, and there's lots of wonderful screenshots in the article of games like that if you remember those or would like to know what playing games used to be like. And she is also reportedly to have uh, designed the first-ever game with graphics called Mystery House. And while the graphics are simple... They are still the first ever seen, and kind of blew some people's minds when it happened. And um, actually she ends up being one of the founders of the game, the, the comp- games company Sierra, which I definitely do remember that put out a lot of uh, a lot of classic games in the 80s and I think early 90s as well. I mean, I remember playing them, so they must have lasted a reasonably long time. And then of course, as with so many companies from this kind of era, and especially I mean, it still happens now with game companies, Uh, Things can go sour very quickly, and in the late 90s, the company slimmed down, lots of uh, staff were laid off, and no one has really heard much from her ever since. And this article tries to fill in some of the background on that story, but uh, I would encourage you to go and read to fill in the blanks there, and uh, make your own minds up on the the story of this um, somewhat remembered woman from early computing game history and uh, maybe see if you can find some uh, some elements of a work still around that you can still play. Next is an article uh, from the Cloudflare blog, of all places, by Zach Bloom, The History of the URL. Uh, this is a nice little potted history, um, actually from a similar-ish era, kind of 80s to 90s, on the history of the URL, how it formed, um, why certain elements of the URL are the way they are, And how they have developed, how they have changed, how they might change in the future as well. It also covers some of the elements that went into URL design, things like DINET, things like DNS, for example... And also some of the technologies that sort of came and went along the journey. And have got integrated into it things like Punicode, which I sort of love the name of. And the different protocols that kind of came and went. If anyone remembers Gopher, I just about remember it. I don't think I ever really used it, but I definitely remember having access to it. I know that. Uh, why port numbers were created. Uh, why particular ports ended up being the protocols they now are. And then... I guess the summary of the article is kind of saying that a lot of the URL design we have is somewhat related to the systems they were designed on, which makes a lot of sense. And these at the time were, of course, mostly Unix machines. Um, so, And they were sort of referring to to folders and paths on machines, um, which is a bit more abstracted now than it used to be. So it's quite a fascinating dig into to why things are the way they are and why these kind of odd-looking structures that we're so used to typing in now kind of are the way and and what they have become. So if that fascinates you, have a look. I'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on uh, anything that you've heard me mention so far, including the history of the URL, the history of Sierra Online and many other articles yet to come. Let's get to the next one. All right, Ars Technica. This is from Ars Technica, an article by... Jim Salter, and it's a nice little potted introduction to open source licenses. Um, Some of this relates to some of the things we've just covered already. Maybe not so much, actually. Um, Open source licenses can be quite thorny, and I found this a nice little summary of what they are and why you might want to use them. And I think I'll just leave it there in the description. I don't really need to go into any more detail, but if uh, that's something that has always confused you, have a read, and it gives you some nice jumping-off points to further reading to understand a bit more about some of the nuances and details of particular licenses and types. Another final bit of history, uh, just to throw into the mix, something a bit different, going into board games now. This is an article from Vice, by Duncan Fife, and it is the history of Mastermind. I don't know if anyone remembers this game, not the TV show. The weird board game, with the strange people on the front cover, this kind of like uh, suave-looking... Svengali and this um, woman standing behind him. Actually, <laughs> those people are somewhat infamous in their famousness, if that makes any kind of sense. I don't think it really does. Uh, they were just hired for a photo shoot and no one really recognises them and no one really remembers who they are. But still, the fact they're on the front cover of this quite popular at the time game is quite interesting story of how they got there in the first place. And uh, why the game was invented... Uh, It's very rapid rise to success, and it's equally, to be honest with you, rapid fall. It is not really as popular as it was, Um, and despite many, many versions of it being made, and this is probably one of the reasons it ended up kind of failing. And what happened to the game afterwards? It has been referenced in a few strange cultural places, including the game Fallout, but for the most part, you don't really see it anymore. People do not really play it anymore. So how did this strange game get created, and what has happened to it? Uh, have a read to uh, to find out more. And I'd love to hear if you remember playing this game. I don't think I did, actually. I'm not sure. I feel like it might be one of those things I owned, but I never played. <laughs> and that was all my links for the week. I'm catching up a little bit. I hope that wasn't too random or too rambling or too long. Getting back into Cadence again. Uh, and now you can hear my interview with Nick Mulwood of Mgage, where we talk about the ways that different messaging um, platforms, protocols from the history of mobile phones have been used and can be used for companies to engage with phone users. Enjoy. And that was my interview with Nick Millward.
1: Uh, Nick Millward. So my title is VP Europe. Um, so Engage is a mobile um, engagement company. So we provide services to two big brands um, and we provide the technical technology solutions so that they can engage with their end customers. Mm -hmm. So we've been around for about 21 years now, Um, as an organization, we've been through various mergers acquisitions. Um, we're about 50 people in Europe and we're around about 150 in, uh, North America Mm -hmm. and we've got people dotted kind of around the globe as well. But, um, that predominantly is our, is our kind of setup, um, a lot of what we do is um, is working with brands, ha- household name brands uh, that just wish to get messages out to their customers, uh, primarily through the mobile channel, which is what I think I've already said. Um, so what we do is we connect to the phone companies. We're directly connected um, in most countries around the globe, and where we're not connected, we'll use other partners. Um, and basically, we enable customers to get that message out Mm -hmm. um, to the mobile device. So some of the channels are SMS, uh, in-app push messaging, MMS. Um, We even do voice messaging. Um, We have software, proprietary in-house software that allows customers to either log on to the web to, to manage that, like a campaign management type tool, or they can use API connectivity so they can connect in through using their own systems and just execute messages through our platforms. Mm -hmm.
0: So I guess the first question I might ask from a company perspective is how do you compare to companies like um, Twilio and there's another one in the UK? Uh, Nexmo. Nexmo. Yeah. How do you compare to those?
1: Yeah, very similar okay. in, in as much as they're connected into the phone companies like we are. Um, Twilio and Nexom are pretty much uh, uh, API-only base. Mm. So they don't tend to require much, or they don't do much hand hands-on kind of account management and, and support. It is more of a, you know, here's a bit of code you can drop into your system, and that will then connect through to the Twilio network, and, and off you go. So... Okay. What we do is a bit more of a consultative approach. Um, um, we would tend to build things out with our customers and we would have extra add-ons and different types of, of features and services.
0: Okay. Now, I'm just thinking, I'm actually thinking when I got my first mobile and actually it was about 20 something years ago. So <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, surely you were doing things before mobile, but now I think about it. Um, that's about right. Um yeah. Has it always been messaging based and always mobile? The Mgate business,
1: yeah, certainly always been mobile. Um, uh, not always messaging, but pretty much anything around mobile. So historically, we used to have teams with, that built apps for businesses. Mm. That's something we don't do anymore, mm-hmm. um just because. Well, there's there's not much of a markup in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just our di- our business took a bit of a different turn. Mm. So. So, yeah, what we do is we send kind of billions of text messages through our platforms to various operators around the globe now, and that's primarily what, what we do now.
0: Let's go back in history then. So I guess the first main messaging platform on mobiles was SMS. Uh, now I'm trying to remember what that stands for. Simple messaging service?
1: Short messaging Short service. Short messaging service. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> it is simple. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And um, I suppose back in those days, what, how did things work? I have a, a vague recollection of getting um, kind of SMS campaigns, but very, very vague. So how would that have worked then?
1: So, I mean, originally when it, I mean, the, the technology first started off, I mean, even when I joined Orange when it first launch, launched as a graduate, we used uh, SMS as engineers to, to communicate with one another between the towers mm. um, that that's how we did it. Cause we didn't have a phone line set up then. So we would actually text one another and then it became kind of a consumer um, solution where, you know, a person would text their friend, for example. Uh, the next evolution beyond that would, was that brands then started to text their customers mm. Probably, I think originally started around kind of notifications, alerts, that mm-hmm. type of thing. Like, I don't know your. It looks like there's some fraudulent activity on your credit card. Uh, please give us a call. Um, yeah, you know, those types of messages are still very, very um, prevalent right now. And in in terms of how things have evolved more recently, is that obviously you've got richer uh, communication. Apps come on board like WhatsApp. Let,
0: and- let's come back to those in a minute. I want to stay in sure. the past for a little bit. But I, I as far as I can remember, mobile browsers came a lot later. So I guess the engagement possibilities were pretty one way in the early days of SMS.
1: Um I think they were always two way, but okay. certainly when um with the with things like WAP, when WAP was yeah, called-
0: yeah, that's what that's what I remember. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And you had the very slow kind of to load web pages. I remember launching that actually. Mm. It's called Vodafone Live back mm-hmm. in the day. So, Vodafone, I think, was the first to launch the WAP. I think
0: that's who my first phone was with as well. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, and, and what happened through there was things like, um, I don't know if you remember ringtones. I think yes, of course. <laughs> and, then, and then you can actually pay for buy a ringtone you yeah, t- yeah. text in um and it would do what's called a premium rate sms it would charge you a pound or something or whatever the cost was add it to your phone bill and then it would send you through whack this ringtone that you could download to the phone
0: yeah and donations and things like that i guess text yeah blah 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 to blah blah blah
1: (laughs) exactly yeah and that's still going strong yeah it is and then
0: let's jump forward a bit actually the one that i think in some respects was possibly not as successful as as it could have been or people don't really remember it very much was mms Mm -hmm. the i don't know i try to remember what you could even do with it i think people just used to send images weird short videos other things but then you generally required it required some sort of data connection didn't it i think
1: Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. It, it's sent using data channel. I think maybe the text element of it is yeah. Yeah. over SMS, but the, yeah, definitely the pictures and the short video is, is a data link. And
0: was that massively popular with brands?
1: Not at all. Well, it's, <laughs> it depends where in the world because yeah. in North America, we're doing a lot of MMS and, we, and it's growing as well because okay. the primary reason is because the price is low. Yeah, it. yeah. And for whatever it never used you, to be, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly UK. They've not they've not changed the pricing, and, and that's what's kept people off it. Okay. You know? yeah.
0: And then you started mentioning messenger apps, but let's just just in case there's any gaps we filled there. Was there anything between MMS and then messaging apps that I might have forgotten about?
1: Um, well, we had MMS SMS. Yeah, I think I think then jumps to. Jumps to things like, yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Probably for that.
0: And yeah. what do you think was the first mobile messaging app?
1: It's a really good question. Um, I don't know, is the honest answer to that. I could guess maybe at it. Blackberry, I,
0: maybe? I don't know.
1: They were certainly email. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, email. I suppose you could count that as a message. <laughs> is, yeah. So. And yeah. then, of course, uh, these have a uh, lot of potential for brand engagement and have almost been designed around it i've done a little bit of work myself on telegram and facebook bots and i mean Mm -hmm. i think every messaging platform i'm not entirely sure about imessage uh has some form of of way of of manipulating the messages and and sending apis and adding bots and interactions and all sorts of things so what are what are some of the the most common things you see brands do with those obviously a little platform dependent but sort of generally?
1: Well, I think uh, the one thing I've seen, and brands just seem to be very, very much behind, behind the curve. We do see, we do see some brands um, kind of taking the lead on certain things, but um, they're very much into, so when you talk about mobile messaging or mobile engagement, a lot of their spend is on advertising through social now, and that's typically things like they'll put a banner ad, um, in Facebook, for example, that if you look at somebody's marketing budget, a lot of the budget that's now being spent by brands is shifting across to that type of advertising almost. But there is also an increase in spend on things like text messages. Um, and what they're, what we're seeing a lot of now is they're dropping in um, emojis to the text message to kind of bring them to life a little bit more. Again, we know that the engagement rates increase when you add things like emojis in and a bit of um, personality really to the message itself. Mm -hmm. So um, emojis is kind of coming in. Then what we're seeing now is more of that emergence into what we call the OTT providers, which is uh, Apple business chat, Facebook messenger, WhatsApp, and then obviously RCS is coming on there as well. Mm.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So I'm guessing, my, my assumptions around what I've heard about RCS and it's not widely known yet, apart from anyone who kind of listens to certain tech podcasts or reads certain outlets is an attempt to create something messenger platform like, but kind of a, a standard and cross platform. So something that, um, well Apple has uh, iMessage or whatever it's called now, um, that, is kind of a base level option that's always available. Uh, and then Android doesn't really have that. Everyone always adds something else. And of course we have cross-platform options, but they're not a standard. They're not um, uh, handset or operator owned. And that's kind of my assumptions about what I've heard of what RCS is. Um, but maybe you can fill in any gaps there.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I think pretty spot on there. I think... Um... What's happened is Google have have tried to launch um, RCS, which has happened about three three or so years ago, maybe slightly more when they acquired Jive as their platform Mm -hmm. um, of choice. And then they've looked to really push this out to, I think through their um, sort of SMS application, Mm. RCS application, whatever you want to call it, the iMessage equivalent is, is where they've tried to enhance the messaging experience by using, as by default RCS mm. um, kind of protocol um, that enables this kind of richer experience. So it was it was taken up really quickly by GSMA, mm-hmm. um, who kind of got all the operators across the world together and said, "Look, we're going to try and standardise this so that it can be used across any device." And what you've seen the reality is that Apple have just taken a step back and. Okay. We know that they've developed RCS. We know that it's there, but I think um, they'll either come on board if they get enough pressure from all the carriers or more likely they'll probably launch their own service, which is Apple Business Chat. And Companies like us will need to probably have an RCS function and an Apple Business Chat function and try and sort of mold the two things together and then present that to a brand and say, forget what it's called we've got a really kind of rich uh, messaging solution through our platforms you can reach any device with. And then under the bonnet, it's kind of RCS to Android and it's Apple business chat to Apple.
0: So you, it's, you don't think it's likely that they'll integrate it with, with iMessage? I guess there's no business interest for them to do so.
1: Yeah, the, uh, I think it's becoming increasingly more unlikely that they uh. will do that. I did think it was likely last year. Uh, I thought that the operators would exert pressure onto Apple to do it because obviously the the operators can monetize this. They can't monetize um, an iMessage solution. So we thought (laughs) that they would pressurize them to doing this, but that hasn't happened.
0: Yeah. And do you think, is there any likelihood of any of the major messaging applications adopting it as a a base level at the very least?
1: Um, Not what we're hearing of. I mean, WhatsApp, which obviously... Facebook is is pushing its own solution Mm. and their um, adoption rates and downloads are increasing all the time. I think they're up to about two and a half billion downloads or users now, Mm. um, which has increased a lot even over the last three months, Mm -hmm. six months. So I don't see them adopting RCS. I I think this is a pure play operator solution Mm. that sits on top of the SMS.
0: So in, in reality, I think every consumer or kind of tech consumers dream with RCS was that it would unify everything, but that's probably yeah. not going to happen then.
1: <laughs> I don't see it right now. I mean, I, I mean again, my, my view changes probably every six months with things that kind of just change in the market. But mm. right now I don't see it being unified. Um, so,
0: so just out of interest... If, if someone, a developer or someone like that, was not to use something like mgage, gauge just, just mm-hmm. taking your mgage gauge hat off for a second, yeah. how possible is it for any developer to start developing something for it, much like they can with Telegram or Facebook Messenger?
1: Do you mean in terms of a brand developing a solution to send messages to? Yeah, it?
0: so to create a, a, a chatbot or an assistant or... Um, push out notifications that kind of thing is it possible for anybody to do it or do they have to go through partners right now
1: no I think anybody can do it I mean in terms of um, you know you've got the likes of Viber as another good example you know you and kick and line and all these other ones but I think you know what's happened is WhatsApp have just stolen the market there right now and everybody kind of uses that what we see is a lot of Apps kind of getting deleted more and more and, and downloads are less and less. Um, I think if someone was to come in and, and provide that, there would have to be an enormous amount of marketing to spend to try and hmm. you know get that out there. But it is doable, absolutely, hmm. yeah.
0: And for for people who are not particularly familiar with what is possible, comparing, I guess, to other alternatives, what what can you do with RCS? What can you send? What kind of interactions can you have?
1: So it lends itself really well to um, two-way interactions because, because of the, the rich capability. I mean, you can have two-way interaction on SMS, but it, it it's very difficult to hold the audience just on that text. So through RCS, I think chatbots is probably going to be one of the kind of main applications through it. Um, I also believe that, you know, we talked earlier about the charity companies where you can text donate where through rcs what we've started to build now because we work with companies like oxfam is we're building um kind of video that you would normally see on the tv and we're building it through the rcs application and you can't do that through through sms but you can certainly do it through through rcs but also within rcs you can build out a capability to then do the the payment. Um, or the donation um, capability. So you know I look at the video, it gives me options to donate either as a one-off or a monthly donation subscription setup type thing. And then I can interact with the brand as well. I can ask questions or I can maybe even pause my my donation on that particular month or week. So it just lends itself to being a bit more kind of two-way, a bit more um, conversational.
0: And does it remember, uh, the state of the user in, in some way, like, you know, with, uh, I mean, Facebook messenger is an, is unfair example because obviously everything is tied to your Facebook account, but can you store details of, of a consumer somehow? So you don't have to keep asking for, for certain information.
1: Yeah, that would probably happen through other third party platforms, um, so you, it, it, we've got functions within our own platform our platform is called communicate pro mm-hmm. and that's the bit that you the, the, the platform that you would set up companies through um, you, that's the bit that like apis and chatbots hang off the back of and then it could also be a crm so it mm-hmm. could be I don't know it could be salesforce it could be hubspot that has all that deep knowledge about a particular client so you know it could be that we send a message to an oxfam donator Because we know historically they were subscribed to donating £20 a month and they're currently not donating anything. So we could target them to try and get them back on board with a £20 per month donation versus a £5 per month donation. Just because we, in the back-end systems, we know a bit about that, that customer. But again, that... That proprietary kind of information, knowledge about the client, is pretty much held outside of M. A company like Mgage, it would be with the brand themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And just, just, just wondering. I'm just having a look at the evolution of the spec here. I mean, you mentioned that it Google started started adopting it, although it's, it's been relatively slow. About three years ago, and if I actually look at the history of it, it the first version is uh, ten years ago or twelve years ago now. Yeah. um and really, the major updates happened about 2012 um, and now we're just starting to see it rolled out i'm I'm personally yet to experience any interactions with with the the standard as far as I know anyway <laughs> um, so why, why that's actually a relatively long time Why do you think it's taken quite a while and I guess what were people doing with it before that?
1: I think um, I think it's required quite a lot of money to be thrown at it in terms of marketing it in terms mm-hmm. of you know getting the ecosystem together um, and I think that's what Google have done over the last three years but again you know even today when you look at the penetration on the device it's relatively low it's not you know look just purely Android devices mm-hmm. um, I don't have an exact number to mine but it's still relatively low and, you know, we're asking the question of Google and the operators saying, how are you going to increase the penetration of this? Because when you talk to a brand, you know, you need probably to be able to hit more than 50% of their users for them to take it seriously. And we're not still quite at that point yet, but Mm. we're getting a lot of people, you know, brands starting to use it in a prototype mode and understanding what, what the possibilities are of it, but we still need to drive more usability of it. Um, I think what's kind of holding it back is um, we need we need to kind of do some more forced um, forced downloads or forced um, upgrades to existing devices. I mm. think any new device that's being shipped it does have RCS on there by default. Um, so I think it's just taking longer than than we've kind of predicted to get to that sort of large scale market
0: and we always know how long it can take android devices to update unfortunately so yeah. that's that's yeah. getting better but it unfortunately involves people to be upgraded to at least i think one or two versions ago first which is still a unfortunately small number so so yeah um, and and were people doing anything with rcs up until about 2012 were there apps that had just small user bases or it was just purely in in kind of laboratories up until that point
1: no i think you did have um certainly vodafone's a good example of that they had they've been using rcs for a number of years they rolled it out on their own um application but that was really only then available between vodafone customers so it's Mm. again quite limited i think their intention was always kind of P 2 P it was, mm. you know, you could use this to message between your friends, but, um, it needed all the other carriers on board and it needed, you know, needed a global kind of solution and it needed to be available on, on Apple devices mm. as well. Mm. So, um, that's kind of, um, that's what's limited it. I think a few other operators globally did the same thing as well. Mm. Um, that's my understanding that they, you know, it has been these pockets, but it, it, the intention when it was launched by Google is that, look, we're going to launch this. It's going to be on every Android device, on every carrier around the world. Um, and I think their intention is still that there'd be some interoperability with with Apple hmm. as well. Okay.
0: And final question. Um, what's, what's on the roadmap, I guess, for you, but also for uh, messaging standards, <laughs> I don't know, for the next six months?
1: So we we need to solve this Apple problem. Um, that that's very clear to us. So, one thing we need to one thing we're looking at um, seriously right now is is integrating with Apple Business Chat, and probably WhatsApp as well. So th- those are our two key focus areas in terms of roadmap. Um, and the other side of it, we will continue working with Google as we are today to you know to increase and, and help them increase and justify investment and the carrier's investment mm. in rolling RCS out further onto Android devices. Um, I think another key component of it is, is not to just be an enabler of the channel. It's to look at, well, where can we add some sort of something different and something new into RCS as well? So through our own internal platforms, we're looking at potentially building those out into more you know, easy to use content management platforms. So as a brand, I go in and I want to send um, a rich message out um, in six months hopefully they can send it out to an Android or to an Apple device um, but also through our platforms they can drag and drop collateral easily to create the the use case or the campaign that, that they want to, mm-hmm. to send out um, again we're working with AI companies and chatbot companies to integrate chatbots we're working with some banks around that um, again to pull people as much as possible away from making expensive phone calls, which A, is expensive for everybody involved. Mm. B, we know that consumers prefer, you know, a, a asynchronous kind of conversation now more than being sat on an IVR for x amount of time. So things like that, we're, we're kind of, we're building out.
0: Yeah. Having spent two hours today and two hours yesterday in an IVR, and having a chatbot that didn't work, then <laughs> being told to use a chatbot that didn't work, then uh, yeah, I think I mostly agree with you. But the technology is still sometimes lacking, isn't it? Even from yeah, major absolutely. brands. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a pick the phone up in frustration and I'll wait as yep. long as it takes to speak to somebody. Yeah. Go-
0: well, phone calls are cheap for us. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so. Well, obviously, I'm not really going anywhere over the next few months. Uh, I was actually supposed to be away most of this month. <laughs> doing in- I should be currently in Austin, South by Southwest, sunning myself and eating tacos and drinking lovely beer, but I am not. I should be going to KubeCon, but I am not. I should be going to gaming conventions, but I am not. Uh, I think the same for all of you. A lot of things have been cancelled, so who knows what is happening. But I'm taking this opportunity to catch up with a lot of my writing, a lot of my projects. So do keep an eye on christianjilla.com for that. Uh, I am actually starting to do some trial episodes of some new podcast ideas I've had for some time, some new streaming ideas. So do make sure you keep in touch with me uh, on Twitter uh, LinkedIn. I'm actually experimenting with quite a lot of remote things at the moment and helping other people set those up as well. So... You will not see me in person very much over the next um, who knows how long, but you can still find me doing things reasonably actively by looking at christianjilla.com, Christianch on Twitter or find uh, christianjilla on LinkedIn uh, and all my Facebook page, facebook.com slash christianjilla. So there will be lots still happening and I look forward to interacting with all of you soon. However, we may be able to do that moving forward. So take care, look after yourselves, stay in good health Follow all the guidelines of your local state. And um, I will talk to you all again next week if you have been. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs)